I want to invite you to open a copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John chapter 13, and we will be looking at verses 36, uh, not 26, I put the wrong thing on the, uh, on the slide, but chapter 13 verses 36 through chapter 14 verse 14, and the title of the message this morning is Words to Remember. As we approach this text, it, let me ask you a question. If you had only a few, if you knew that you had only a few hours left on the earth, and you had an opportunity to speak to those who were closest to you, what, what would be those words that you would share with them? What would you take that opportunity to say? How would you instruct those who were closest to you? Our text this morning continues what's known as the the upper room discourse where Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room after they've partaken of, of the Last Supper together and Judas, the betrayer, has gone out from their midst. And beginning in verse 31, it says, Therefore, Jesus was teaching, or therefore, when he had gone out, now the Son of Man was going to be glorified. And so Jesus begins teaching and, and instructing his disciples. This is the setting of the text that we approach this morning. In Jesus' final hours, he draws his disciples' attention to his leaving and their remaining. And he, he, he tells them, really, he tells them that enduring trust is the consistent activity of every disciple's life. Enduring trust is the consistent activity of every disciple's life. But before I get too far ahead, let us read from beginning in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me 
the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is calling his disciples in the midst of all they're going through. At at their core, he's calling them to trust in him. In verses 36 through 38, we read of the continuing conversation that's going on between Jesus and his disciples. And then in that conversation, what is sparked is some bold but maybe somewhat kind of heroic response from Peter. Where Peter says, Lord, I'll give my life up for you. And Jesus has to respond and say, Peter, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? I think it's important that we understand the details of the discussion that's happening between Jesus and his disciples. In verse 33 of chapter 13, Jesus has told his disciples, where I'm going, you can't follow. And they're left wondering, why why can't we follow where you're going? We've given our lives to follow you, to serve you, to to walk with you. Why Why can't we follow you? We've given everything to follow you. So they're confused, they're, they're uncertain about exactly what Jesus means, and understandably, they have questions. And so Peter, in verse 36, says, Lord, where are you going? When he says, I'll lay down my life for you, Peter is saying, Lord, I'm ready to go to my death for you. I'm committed I'm so committed, in fact, to you that I'll give my life for yours. To spare your life, I will give my life. Peter hasn't quite understood fully yet the significance of what Jesus has been telling him, that he would lay down his life for the disciples. Peter is unaware of what's about to happen even in his own life. That, as verse 38 says, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Peter will deny his Lord. And so Jesus asked him, will you lay down your life for me? And so in the midst of Peter's bold declaration, even in the Gospel of Luke, Luke records for us words that Jesus has shared with Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Luke tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows the faith of his disciples. The world for his disciples is about to be Rocked, for lack of better word. Their foundation is about to be shaken. And for that very reason, Jesus tells them these words. These are words to remember for his disciples. Chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled, he says. This word troubled, it's a familiar word for us. We've seen it back in chapter 11 and in chapter 12. It means to experience inward turmoil. It means to be unsettled in, in inwardly. and it, it means to become unsettled in all the things outwardly as well. It, it means to stir one up. 
This is the same word that's used to describe Jesus when he's at Lazarus's graveside in, in chapter 11, verse 33. It says he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And again in chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this hour I came. Here's the thing. Jesus knows that the hearts of his disciples are troubled. The problem his disciples are facing is they're anxious They're troubled. They're experiencing inward turmoil and unsettledness about all of this. That Jesus is going away. The one that they've committed their lives to following. They don't know what to do. And so Jesus not only identifies the problem, don't let your heart be troubled, but he gives them the solution. And the solution is seen there in verse 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, the answer to calm their troubled hearts is enduring trust. Instead of being troubled, he says, believe are rendered here. The the word believe is rendered trust. Trust in God. Trust also in me. These two words, believe, are trust. They're commands in the scripture. Here's what he's doing. He's calling his disciples to the consistent activity of trusting God and trusting himself. They must learn to keep an eternal perspective on life. No matter what comes, they must learn to look past the present reality and see that God's promises are secure, that what he has said and communicated about God the Father is true. And so the truth isn't only for the disciples, that they need to learn to keep an eternal perspective in view. But we too must learn to trust God in the midst of our anxiety and in the midst of our difficulties. When things are out of control, when the bottom falls out and and we encounter something or, or even many things that shake the foundation of our lives, how do we respond This is what happens for Peter and the disciples. If we fast forward to the end of the Gospel of John, where do we find Peter and the apostles? We find them fishing. They don't know what to do. And even here, Jesus knows their hearts are troubled. When things are out of control and are hitting us from all directions, like it it is for the disciples here, the question is, are we tempted to be anxious Are we tempted to doubt God's sovereignty? Are we we tempted to lack trust in God's faithfulness? Because when we become anxious, when we worry, you know what it really means. It means we're not trusting God with, with this issue. It means we're not trusting God in the details of our lives. It means we're not turning to God and giving Him these struggles that we have. Instead, we're trying to walk through them all in our own strength. If I could pry just a little bit this morning, what what are some of the things that make you anxious? What are some of the things, perhaps, that trouble your soul? Finances? Uncertainty about the future? Job security? Death or passing of a loved one? Diagnosis of cancer? You you fill in the blank. 
Jesus' words to the disciples are words for us this morning. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Listen, believe in God, believe also in me. It is a call that we would trust God in the midst of all of our circumstances, in the midst of all of life, that we would trust God. And so Jesus reassures the disciples and us by pointing beyond the present trouble to the re- to the eternal reality that his death achieves, his death on the cross. And so the call for the disciple then is to have trust that is enduring as a consistent part of their lives, of our lives. Because here's the thing, Christ's death will secure an eternal dwelling place for his disciples in the Father's house. Here's why we can have trust, enduring trust in God's faithfulness. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. The Father's house he's talking about here, it's, it's heaven. It's the eternal abode of God. Literally, in my Father's house, in heaven, there are many dwelling places, are, are many rooms. I want to encourage you not to get sidetracked here and start thinking about how big the mansion's going to be or how, how beautiful the halls will be lined with gold. That's not the point that Jesus is making here. The point Jesus makes here is simple. There's room for all of his disciples. Why? Because Christ is faithful. When he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I go to prepare a place for you, what he's speaking about is he has gone to the cross to make a way for all of his disciples to be with him eternally in the presence of Almighty God. You know what the best part about eternal life and and the eternal abode of God is? It's not the beauty of the mansions. It is the presence of God. We will be forever, eternally, in God's glorious presence. That's worth praising God about. That's why we can trust Him. That's why He's telling His disciples, you can trust me. And He's calling them to believe in God, believe also in me. It's enduring trust. And it must be a consistent activity in the life of all of His disciples Listen, if we are tempted to doubt, if we are tempted to be anxious over anything, we'll see in a moment where we're called then to come to him in prayer. I love Revelation 21, 3 and 4, as Mr. Al read earlier, that in his presence, we will be dwelling in his presence. He will make our, uh, we, our abode will be in his presence and he'll, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no longer any death and, and no longer any mourning and no crying or pain. All of those things have passed away. So the first reality is that we can trust Jesus because his death secures an eternal dwelling place for his disciples in his father's house. The second reality is this. His going away is for their advantage. Look at the last part of verse 2. He says, for I go to prepare a place for you. You know what? He he answers Peter's question here. I go to prepare. Peter says, where are you going, Lord? Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's where I'm heading. 
That's why you can't follow me right now. Some have asked the question is, are we to suppose or think maybe that Jesus is a, a master carpenter in heaven constructing and building all, all the rooms just waiting for us to get there? He builds more rooms as more people come to faith. That's not at all what's, what's being said here. No, the, the, the work of preparation in Christ's going is his crucifixion and resurrection. It is to our advantage that Christ endured the cross by his death And by his death, our place in God's eternal abode has been prepared. It's because Christ goes to the Father, he says later in verse 16 of this chapter, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that is, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. You see, it's to the believer's advantage, it's to the disciples' advantage that Jesus goes away. Because if Jesus doesn't go to prepare the place, then security for all of the disciples of Christ is not established in the eternal presence of God. But because Christ goes away to prepare the place, He goes to the cross. And we must return to this understanding that the cross is central in the life of Christ's disciples. And so the third reality is this. He's faithful. Not only is he preparing an eternal dwelling place for us as his disciples to be with the Father in the Father's house, and not only is he going away for their advantage so that they might have eternal life, we must understand that Christ is faithful. In verses 3 and 4, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And he tells them, you know the way where I am going. In other words, he's saying, I'll come back and take you to be with me. In verse 18, he says, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come again to you. Listen, we, we can have enduring trust because we can we can. Trust that God is faithful, that Christ is faithful. We can turn all of our anxieties over to Him because we know He cares for us. In the midst of whatever troubles might come about in our lives, we can be assured of this, that God is sovereign over it all. That He is in control over it all. And oftentimes, it's the trials and the struggles that we experience in life that cause us to turn our needs and and our dependency to Him. Because it's often those trials and those struggles that show us just how weak we really are. And that we need a sovereign Savior who is over all things, who is bigger than all things. And so He says, you know the way. The disciples weren't so sure about knowing the way. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And in verse 6, Jesus responds with that statement that has become such a tremendous statement for so many. This might be the most memorized verse in all of Scripture next to John 3.16. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Jesus tells them, you know the way because you know me. Just a couple of points here. Notice that he doesn't say, I am a way. He says, I'm the way. There's only one way. Remember, I had a friend who lived in, who was moving to Grand Isle, and I was going to help him uh, move there. And, um, and to, I wanted to make sure, well, I grew up knowing Grand Isle, but it, I grew up going down to Grand Isle as well. And so uh, the thing about Grand Isle that's interesting is there's only one road in and one road out. Somebody says, well, I don't know how to get down there. Well, you, you can't get lost. You just stay on the main road. There's only one way to get there and one way to get back. And this is, in essence, what Jesus is saying. This is what he's saying. There is only one way to get to heaven. Not a way among many. There's the way. And Jesus is saying, I am the way. I'm not showing you the way. I am the way. It's through me, he's saying. And so Jesus is the only avenue of salvation. Not only is he the way, he's the truth. And truth here, it, it, it describes Jesus and his character and his teaching. Jesus has revealed the truth about God, of God, to humanity. And the word literally speaks of that which is genuine. It's, it's real. There's authenticity about Jesus and truth. Jesus is the very essence of what makes truth, truth. In the prologue, in verse 17, John writes, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus accurately and truthfully reveals the way to the Father through himself and accurately and truthfully represents the Father, reveals God himself. As he walks the earth. And he's the life. John 1 4 said, In him was life, and the life was light of men. Jesus in John 10 10 said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's Jesus who gives life to all who believe, all who profess this faith that we saw exemplified for us this morning through Ethan's baptism, all who profess faith in that Christ. All who, who follow that sovereign Lord, all who believe upon Him, believe in God, believe also in me. He's the way because He's come from God. He's the, the truth because He's the revealer of God. And, and He's the life because He is the creator and sustainer of life. And He gives life to whomever He wishes. You know, this is what Jesus calls us to trust in. The life of Christ's disciples must be built on the consistent activity of enduring trust. The the real question, the the, the foundational question is, is our view of God big enough? Do we believe that God is big enough to handle any of the problems that we have? Do we believe God enough to trust Him in the midst of our desperate circumstances? No matter what happens in life, are we believing in God and Christ? Are we looking forward to what lies ahead in spite of the present troubles that we might be faced with? 
Are we able to rejoice in the salvation that comes through Christ? Not only do we see the enduring trust being a necessary activity of every disciple's life. Jesus speaking in verse 7 clues us into the real issue. The real issue, he says, is if you had known me, you would have known my father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. See, the real issue is this. Knowing God is the chief goal, must be the chief goal of every disciple's life. So the activity, enduring trust. The chief goal, the chief goal is knowing God for every disciple. This might be kind of cheesy, but maybe it'll help get the point across. Have you ever seen those bumper stickers that say, no God, no peace, K-N-O-W, God, K-N-O, peace, and then no God, N-O, God, N-O, peace, no peace? It's as if what Jesus is saying here, and John's communicating to us, is we would understand it to be no Jesus, no God. K-N-O-W, no Jesus, no God, relationally, right? But if there's no Jesus, N-O, in your life, then there is no God. There is no relationship with God. And, And Jesus is driving this point home. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. This is called to relationship the relational component of of walking with God and walking with Christ. So Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough. Philip asked him a question. If you'll just show us God, the Father, that'll be enough for us. And I think two two statements really sum up Jesus' answer to Philip. And Jesus' answer to Philip is, it comes in the form of, 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 of three questions the first statement is this, we know God by hearing and believing the words of Jesus. In the second part of verse 10, he says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. When we hear and believe the words of Christ, then we know God. And so Jesus poses three questions to the disciples. And to Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long that you've not come to know me? All this time that we've spent together and I've been investing in teaching you, that have you not come to know me? Similar question we might ask of ourselves is, have you spent all this time in Scripture reading the Word and you've not come to know me? Have you not, have you not taken it in? Have you just been reading, maybe to get through the, read through the Bible in a year? Or, or have you just been reading for the sake of fulfilling some guilty religious obligation? He asks Philip, have, have I been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? And he tells him, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The second question, how, how can you say, show us the Father, I'm here? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And he's speaking about the unity that he has uniquely as God the Son with God the Father. It's as if Philip is saying, seeing is believing. 
But Jesus responds by saying, no, hearing and believing is seeing. You see, Philip wants a glimpse of God, and he says it'll be enough. But the reality is that, that he's seen the Father through the words and the work of Christ, and he's missed it. So I think what Jesus is saying is that we encounter God through hearing and believing in his word, in Christ's word. And so we must learn and be instructed that it's the word of God, the works of Christ through the cross and through even the church. It's it's this word and this work that points us to knowing God. The second statement is this. The result of knowing God means believing in Jesus and doing greater works. There's been a lot of controversy over these couple of verses. What do these greater works mean? Does it mean we're going to do all these great miracles, greater miracles than Christ? And if we're not doing those, do we lack faith? The first thing I want us to see, look in verse 12. Truly, truly, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. You see, we are able to do greater works because Jesus goes to the Father. It's a promise that believers will do greater works than Jesus. The question is, what are these works? What are these works? The word used here for works in the New Testament is different than the word that's used throughout the Gospel of John to speak about the signs and the miracles that Jesus performs. Two completely different words. They're not connected. Jesus isn't speaking of greater miracles as as people have mistakenly thought and spoke about. No, what Jesus is speaking about is he's speaking about accomplishing the work of the Father, which Namely, is the proclamation of the gospel that others might either believe and repent, leading to their conversion and salvation, or that they would reject and be condemned, experiencing the judgment of God. The words have already been defined in John's gospel. If you will, just turn back to John chapter 5, verse 20. In John 5.20, these works in Jesus' ministry are are already defined and, and they're distinct from the signs. In verse 20, it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these, and you will marvel. All right, so greater works, the Father is going to show greater works than these. Verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. One of the works here is the Son gives life. Verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son. The second work is He's given the judgment to the Son. Why? So that, in verse 23, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Why? Because they are one and the same. And then just flip over a couple of pages to chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. Therefore they said to him, 
What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, listen, that you believe in him whom he has sent. All right, so get the picture here. Chapter 14, verse 12. The greater works are not greater physical signs. The greater works are the proclamation of the words of the Father to accomplish the work of the Father. Proclamation of the gospel and repentance leading to salvation or rejection leading to judgment. These are the works of Christ's disciples. These are greater works. And these greater works bring about, here's why they're greater works. They bring about life for many, many more people than Jesus was ever able to reach during his earthly ministry. And so Jesus tells his disciples their works will be greater through proclaiming his death and his resurrection for the salvation of all who repent and believe. You see, knowing God means hearing and believing the words of Jesus. And it calls us to action as his disciples. Proclaiming the hope of Christ so that others might believe is the mission of the disciples and of the church. There are two qualifiers for this work. Those two qualifiers are seen in number two and number three. These greater works are born through prayer. Two times, verses 13 and 14, Jesus assumes, he assumes the necessity of prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, and if you ask anything in my name. You see, if knowing God is the chief goal of a disciple's life, then we'll commune with him in and through prayer. Prayer is where we exercise faith and our our dependence upon God the Father. And so this isn't a name-it-claim-it theology. No, listen, this is understanding the privilege of interacting with our divine Lord and Savior, whereby my will, your will, our will, is brought in submission to the Father. You see, the aim of the disciple's life isn't to be set on worrying. The disciples are to be set on trusting in God and prayerfully engaging in the works of God for the glory of God. That's the call for the disciples. So what are those works? I will challenge you in this way. Those works are accomplished and happen through the proclamation of the gospel, which doesn't always mean we stand on a street corner or it doesn't mean that we become the one that everybody runs away from in the office because we don't share the words of Christ in love. No, but here's what those works are. It it looks like this, in our homes. It, It simply looks like discipling our children by modeling a love for God's word and teaching them to live under God's authority. How do we do that? Well, we teach them to live under God's authority because they live under our authority. In our community, it looks like serving our neighbors through hospitality so that we might shine the light of the gospel into their lives. 
in our vocations, it, it looks like doing all things excellently so that we would draw all people to see our most excellent God. And in our marriages, it means loving one another and allowing our marriages to exemplify the love of Christ. And in the church, in the corporate body that gathers, it it means exercising the unique gifts that God has given us to serve one another, to wash someone else's feet, to think of yourself less and others more. These greater works are born through prayer. It takes prayer to come to that place. It takes prayer to hear from God. It takes prayer to do these greater works. The second qualifier is this. These greater works are dependent on God receiving glory. He says that at the end of verse 13. That I will, uh, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You know, this means that we're not seeking our own glory. We're, we're seeking God's glory. And through prayer, we show our dependence on God for His work. Praying in Jesus' name isn't a divine formula that gets us anything and everything we want. No, it's a recognition of Christ's authority in our lives and over our lives. So when we pray in Christ's name... Here's what we're doing. We're asking the Lord of all creation, the sustainer, the creator of life. We are asking him and calling on him to reign supremely by accomplishing his will in and through our lives. Isn't it amazing that we have the privilege of prayer? Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the father may be glorified. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So we must pray in concert with the character and the teaching of Christ. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't promise to answer all our prayers for health and wealth and prosperity and trouble-free living and uh, living that's free from sickness. Get the picture of this of this text. Yeah, exclamation point. This is important. (laughs) Jesus is calling us to believe in God and to believe also in Him with an enduring trust that says whatever comes, whether it be health and wealth and prosperity or whether it be sickness and poverty and despair, that we would have a big enough view of our God and Creator that we trust Him in any and everything and that we believe God and we believe Christ, that Christ is a revelation of God the Father, and He has come to redeem humanity. And it's through the redemption of Christ on the cross that we can come to the Father and have our eternal abode with God.
Can your life be described by the consistent activity of enduring trust? Are you turning all things over to God and trusting Him with the results? Is knowing God the chief goal of your life? Is that how you're approaching His Word? To know Him? Are you hearing and believing on the words of Christ? And lastly, are you engaging in the mission of greater works for the glory of God? I want to challenge you this morning, if you've come to a realization that you don't know this Jesus Christ that the Scripture reveals, that you've never confessed what Ethan confessed, professed this morning, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that you can do that if the Lord is leading you this morning by confessing your sin before Him, saying that you repent and trusting in His sovereignty for salvation of your soul. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. He is the only way. And this morning, believer, maybe for you, you've recognized some areas of your own life and fellowship with God that are in need of attention and some areas that need to be turned over to trusting in Him. If that's the case for you, I want to invite you to repent before the Lord and rejoice because the repentance that we experience brings joy in our life because it renews and restores the fellowship that we have with the Father. So I'm going to pray for us this morning. And I want to invite you to respond as the Lord leads you. If, if the Lord's prompting you to trust Him for salvation, but I want you to know I'll be up front and I'll, I would love to speak with you more about what it means to believe on Christ for salvation. But you respond this morning as the Lord leads you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to work in our hearts and our minds. We trust you in all things and we surrender to you in all ways. God, increase our faith, we pray. We long to know you more fully. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?